So while he's fixing that, um, these T-shirts aren't just a, a prop, right? They, they're you, you've issued them for charity and raising money for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, about I think it, they've been doing. I, I have to say, I'm I don't have a lot to do, but I just say okay. Um, but um, about once a year, they sell them for like two weeks or something like that, and. Um, at first, it was for a charity in L.A., a, uh, for a homeless shelter for teenagers, and now it's uh, to support independent bookstores. Um, the last couple ones have, have been for that. So look for it online. <laughs> well, they, you just missed this, this year's sale, so. Aha. Uh -huh. So. Support? <laughs> yeah. So they'll, they'll probably do it next year again. So we're here to talk about Desert Star, and what what number in the Bosch canon is this? I couldn't tell you because he shows up and he's not in some books, so I don't keep a track. I think someone, uh, so, I think some uh, review or something said he's been in twenty six out of thirty seven novels, and he still feels as fresh today as he did when you first wrote him, right? I don't. <laughs> fresh is not the right word. He's still, he's still interesting to me. He's very interesting to me because, and you know, I was groping around in the dark, but um, so it wasn't any kind of long-range plan. But I did decide to age him in real time, and so I think if I had not done that, it would have been a harder challenge to keep him going. But instead, I'm showing him uh, evolving as, as a person against the city that's evolving. And, um, and that's always kept it pretty interesting for me. And, and age is a, is a real component in this book, Mort mortality we were talking about. And, and you, I think more than maybe any of your other Bosch books, you really see Harry starting to get old in this book. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering at what point did you you said you were wandering around in the dark, fumbling around in the dark when you started. When did it become a deliberate plan to age him in real time and and carry him forward this way? Well, I mean, as soon as they said, do you want another book? <laughs> I mean, can you do another book back in, I guess, 1993? Um, it was, so it was a plan from the start, but even back then, you know, how could I have known that this character would sustain me sustain readers and so forth for 30 years it's, you, there's no way anyone could know that and but here i am so i just you know it's obviously a very fortunate thing that that this has happened this way and you know so i i really have to um regard it and and uh take care of it you know and it's it's kind of a sacred thing so don't don't mess it up you know and uh and think about these things like how he would age and and what that would do and and part of the uh challenge is is to keep him alive on the page and i don't mean like alive i mean you know you said is he still fresh i mean how do i keep him going because i've said in the books he was born in 1950 so he's 72 years old this year and uh and uh, you know i've had the good fortune of things happening there's there's an obvious and growing trend in law enforcement that you know cold case units are becoming more and more voluntary units and 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 in cases are investigated by 
retired detectives who still feel a sense of mission and um, give you know one or two days a week to uh, go through old cases, look for DNA, look for things that it, that under today's technology they can carry forward and reopen cases. That is a real trend that's been happening in the last five six years, and and so that that gives me a, a you know the coin to keep Harry Bosch going, um, and that's really what this book is about. Um, it's uh, uh, Renee Ballard is a character I've been writing about for maybe five years now, and uh, she's a single source inspiration. Like Harry Bosch came from a lot of detectives I met as a newspaper reporter, and um, but Ballard comes from one detective I know, and uh, she, uh, if you've been reading along, the last book ended with a question for Ballard: Where's she going to go? Is she going to continue being a cop, or is she going to con? Uh, she kind of has an offer from Harry to let's be private eyes together, that kind of thing. And I didn't answer that in the last book. And I didn't know the answer when I wrote that last book. But like about six weeks after I finished that book, the detective who inspired Boward called me up and said, guess what? I got put in charge of the reconstituted uh, cold case unit at um, LAPD. We, it had been shuttered about six years before. And she said they're rebooting it, and they put the good news is they put me in charge. The bad news is they're not assigning any other detectives. I I have to go out and get volunteers. And so as soon as she told me that, I suddenly knew what the answer to the question was at the end of the book. That's that's what I would do with with Renee. And um, uh, so she of course goes to Harry and and kind of baits him with a case that she knows means a lot to him, and it kind of goes from there. So this is the what. Fifth Ballard book, then sixth. Why are you obsessed with these numbers? <laughs> I, I don't. I, I don't. Well, I was actually more obsessed with the. <laughs> I'm wondering about the woman you're stalking. Yeah. I um. Yeah, I don't really keep track. I mean, because because characters, you know, they mix up. You know, and Bosch and Ballard have been in at least three three books that I can remember. Um, you know, so. It's all one story to me, so that I never have any good answers on how many of this and how many of that. One of the things that I think drives those books, both Ballard and and Bosch, are the are the rich um, family characters the, and and the backstories. In fact, when I read Ballard the first time, I thought that the the idea of having her live in a tent on the beach was was really just compulsive. And then, and then you tell me, no, this is this is the way it is in in the middle of the housing crisis, where she's sleeping on Venice. I think it was Venice Beach, right? Yeah, I mean that was. I mean, she's someone who works through the night, and uh, you know maybe that might stretch believability a little bit, but it was somewhat based on again that same detective. Uh, she had a family house that she, you know, so she had a brick and mortar house she could go to when she wanted to, but. She loved to get off work at dawn and go surfing and then sleep in a tent, um, you know. And uh, so I, uh, when you hear, uh, as a writer, when you hear stuff like that, it's like I don't have to be a creative genius if I surround myself with these interesting people, you know. <laughs> so um, so I just, I guess it is like stalking her. I, I've taken a lot of. A lot of her life. I mean, I I give her the manuscripts to read to vet before I turn them into the publisher, and she's the one who told me, uh, 
you know, I had Ballard sleeping in a tent and surfing and all that. And she goes, she really needs a dog to watch her stuff while she's surfing. And so I put a dog in, you know, and, uh, and, and, you know, that, that's the kind of uh, help I get from her and so forth. And, and the other character that of course is so integral to these books is, is Maddie now, now grown up and, and, following in her father's footsteps but you've you've really you know you've built a a real character out of her and and i imagine your daughter has some stocking credit to that yeah i mean maddie is definitely based on my daughter they're the same age had uh you know went to same schools and things like that and uh, a lot of stuff maddie says or texted harry have been texted to me um you know that kind of stuff so uh, in a way, she's a single source inspired character, although she's now a cop and that's not my daughter's um, uh, experience. So, um, you know, I took her in a different direction, but this aging everyone in real time and, and, and just moving things, the books are basically set in the years they're published. And, uh, um, you know, I, I had always had this idea that if I'm around long enough and, and so forth, and Maddie ages to a point where she has some life experiences. I would like her to be a cop and kind of carry on the mission uh, from her dad. So I'm really kind of moving into a position of being able to do that. So we might see some Maddie Bosch books. Yeah, I hope to write um, some Maddie-only bo uh, books. Yeah. But today we're here for Desert Star, which was, as I was commenting, that one of the central crimes in this book involves a family of four that was that is buried in the desert and and that's you you kind of took that from a real case and, and talked a little bit about the decision making in that and and how you do that it, um it was yeah i mean there's a, it's a pretty famous case probably known out here the mcstay family that just disappeared there's still like cereal in the bowls in their kitchen and and it was just this big mystery of like how a whole family disappeared and then that led to all kinds of rumors and all that and then eventually they were found buried in the desert and so it was a horrible it became a very horrible case and i rarely take inspiration from a real case uh that's been uh in the media i usually have detectives tell me about cases that really haven't made a blip on the public uh, radar, but it's big in their lives, and it meant something to him. That I, that's usually where I get an inspirational point. But this one, I don't know. This one really affected me. Like a whole family, why? Why did like the kids have to be murdered? You know, not that anyone should be murdered, but it was like just an extreme uh, response, especially when it played out. And I don't want to talk about how it played out because I have you. I used some of that in in the book as well. And you, you squared against a second case, a, a kind of serial rape murder case in, in this book. Yeah, I mean, that, that's where you see Ballard's um, scheming. See, so she has to put together this team, and she knows about Harry's skills and how good he is at what he does and relentless he is. So she wants him on the team, so she baits him with this family murder case that... that he was unable to solve back when he was uh, a cop and had a badge. So it's kind of like the um, uh, the case he left on the table when she says, I got the murder books from that case. They're sitting on a desk in our new cold case unit, and that desk has your name on it if you do it, if you want to come in. And, of course, he's going to do that. 
because it gives them, uh, you know, a sanction, an official sanction to to be back investigating this. He doesn't have a badge or a gun or anything like that, but but he does have the approval of the department to be investigating. So it's a offer he can really refuse. But she said, but then there's an asterisk. She says, you can work that case, but you got to work one for me right now. And that's uh, we, the one reason why this uh, cold case unit was reconstituted was because there's a city councilman who wants uh, uh, me to look into the unsolved murder 30 years ago of his sister. And so, so it's kind of like I've done this in a lot of books lately where I have two unrelated cases kind of spinning around each other. I, I call it the double helix um, uh, form of book telling or storytelling. And I've done that a lot in the last 10 years. And but that's how real policing works, right? Nobody gets to work just one case. And, you know, it, yeah. it's always. Um, I wanted to ask you when you were talking about the, the case that might have been that inspired this story, was that case solved? Yeah. Because, and the reason I mentioned that is that Michael would not have been able to take an open cold case and use it in a book. And there, there is an author who actually, I won't name the author, many years ago who did that. And it led to a lawsuit um, on the part of the family of the victims in that case. And it was a big mess. Um, so I'm assuming that um, because you're so wise and smart and probably have good lawyers, that you. Um, you were taking a case that actually had been solved. Yeah, but I've done the opposite. I did a book <laughs> called um, there a book I did a I don't know a while back called The Burning Room um, was based on uh, L.A.'s biggest unsolved case of which was thirteen murders and an arson and uh, twelve. But was of it them. cold? I mean, was it? In yeah, a it was a cold case, and I knew the detectives that were working it, but they had not solved it. Um, so I wrote a book and I solved it. And you know, fictionally, Harry solved it, and then they they solved it, and it was very similar to my book. And so, uh, well, there was no there was no lawsuit, but there's an internal affairs investigation, and and the uh, because someone who was jealous of them of the detectives yeah. who solved it said they gave me, um, you know, a material I shouldn't have had. And uh, and so I had to be interviewed by IUD and, and say, no, I made this up. I know it sounds a lot like the real case, but I, I made it up. And um, so, but no lawsuits. I wanted to get back to your double helix um, analogy because I, I'm fascinated by that. And Barbara kind of hit on it, which is this idea, the idea that no cop gets to just work a pet case all the time. But I think you've built into that helix Harry's kind of um, adage about momentum. And, and it feels like, as you read the book, one of the cases takes precedent, and then the other one does. And you feel the momentum as Harry, as Harry drives through this and as Ballard drives through it. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, you hang around 30 years, you, you learn stuff. And, and to me, I'm constantly taking stuff from the writing experience and giving it to the investigative experience and, and you know so like momentum is so important in the writing you know and i know we've talked about this before if you have good momentum when you're writing the reader's going to have that same momentum and if you're not if you're slogging through you and know, you better rethink what you're doing because i think that you're asking the reader to slog through 
So me- momentum is very important to me. I'm thinking about it all the time when I'm writing, and so then it get, it bleeds into the story. Like Harry wants momentum on a case. He wants to keep keep things moving. And, uh, and you know, it's a little bit of smoke on mirrors. Uh, if Botch is saying we got to keep things moving, we got to keep momentum, the reader thinks there's a lot of momentum going on here, <laughs> and there might not be. I don't know. They feel like they move pretty good. All right, good. But in that, when we're talking about momentum in writing, I'm curious how your the writing style has evolved over over time. You've done some different takes. Harry at one time became a PI and narrated his own story for a couple books, a couple three books, and and then you you went back to the traditional third person narrative and kind of stayed there. But also, what about sentence structure and what about the the way you develop copy? Has that changed too? Yeah, I think everything gets refined. It's everything's a learning experience. I mean, going back to where you said where I did a, I think I did either one or two books with Harry in first person. I realized in writing of those that um, I like the mystery of Harry. And when you're when you're in first person, you can't really hide anything from the reader. And I like how uh, I think this is what's happening. You know, with readers, I don't know for sure because I'm the guy writing the books, but. I think people are intrigued by what is he doing? What is he up to? What is he thinking? And then when it all comes together, it's like, oh, that's cool. Um, and you lose that in first person because unless you're cheating, you know, the reader. And, you know, so the that's the challenge with the Haller books because they are first person. And I've always wanted them to be kind of a whispered confessional about the system. And I thought that demanded a first person. Uh, but I, I think, I mean, I like the books I wrote. One was, uh, um, where he finds out he has a, he's a father and stuff. So I, I, it's not like I disregard the books where Harry is in first person, but I realized to keep this, to sustain the series and keep me interested and so forth, I got to go back to where it's more of a mysterious kind of narrative of, uh, what is he doing? What, you know, what is he up to? Do you, re- in in this long journey, 30 years, do you, re- is there a, a character that you brought up that you regret doing something to? Is is there something you've done to somebody that you said, God damn it, I wish I hadn't done that? Um, not in the way you're saying it. I do regret that in my second book, uh, Bosch was um, driving to Mexico. And uh, I was, I was, I don't know, for some reason I didn't want to say, like, he headed to Mexico and then the next chapter he's in Mexico. I wanted to write about driving to Mexico from L.A. Um, and so doing, I, so it became a travelogue of what he's seeing, but it was also about what he was thinking. And so in a space of, like, three or four pages, I revealed his whole father's story, who his father was, how he found him, how he met him one time. And it was that was it in four four pages, and I totally have regretted that I didn't do something that was much more expanded about mm. that. Um, that you know, you do have a sense that put everything in the book you're writing, and worry about the next book if there is a next book. And this was my second book, so on, at the time I was doing it, I felt like I had to put everything in, but the kitchen sink. And then over time, when you look back, it's like, well, that was a missed opportunity. That was the black ice, right? Yeah. Fantastic story. Thanks. 
but other than that, I don't really have a lot of regrets. Um, I have, I guess I have some regrets about not going back to characters. Uh, uh, Cassie Black and Void Moon, I thought a lot about how can I bring her back and um, just never cracked that. So that's a regret. I mean, the book I did write about her was about the, the most important decision she ever she makes in her life because it's about her child. And uh, so it's like hard to come back from that. Well, like, what's the second most important thing she ever had to decide? So that's always kind of blocked me. And um, and then I put a character that was Harry Bosch's last partner before he quit the police department named uh, uh, Lucy Soto. And uh, so she's only had small parts since then. And I just really liked the character. So... I guess I don't have to be regretful. I could still do something with her, but um, yeah, I mean, that to me, that was the makings of a full-blown character. But instead, I did Boward instead of her. So, Mike, sorry, when you when you wrote the Black Echo, um, you you were under contract to write two books at that point. Uh, no, no, I wasn't under contract. Okay, so when you wrote it. Um, the, your first four books have, have a sort of long character arc for Harry and that he ends up investigating the murder of his mother in book four. And then, you know, you and I had a conversation when we did that event about how you were going to write the poet to do something different. And then, you know, you brought Bosch back in trunk music and he was then going to be just behaving like a cop and not doing a family story. When you wrote The Black Echo, did you have that four book story arc in mind or did it just develop when you wrote the black ice and then i'm terrible on titles so i can't remember the titles of the third and fourth the, book. Um, the last coyote was the one the fourth one right yeah no i mean all you all you can think of is writing the best book to get your foot in the door yeah. you know so all i was thinking about was black echo and putting as much character stuff in it as i could it was right when James Elroy was really kind of breaking big, and uh, there were stories about him, like he, he, his mother was murdered, and whatever trauma that was, he makes him write about murder, and I just stole that, and basically, and said, well, what about a guy who has the same trauma, but he solves murders? And so that's where that came from, and then I got the book published, and it um, showed signs of uh, a possible career, and so they publisher came to me and said we want to do a two book so it came after that and like what are you going to do and i said well i'll solve his mother's murder in the next book and they go no 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 mm -hmm. that's that's something you should wait on and do something else like keep that out there this this pain that he carries so i got a really good advice and so i didn't solve that case or harry didn't i should say um to the fourth book right I thought it was really, I mean, you know, if you read him from the beginning, I thought that that four-book story arc was really fascinating. And then it kind of comes to, you know, a new place for Harry once he has found out what happened to his mother. And then, you know, you go on from there. Has you been writing them? Have you created internal story arcs? Or do you, I mean, is it really book to book? Or do you now have more, you know, pulling some more threads forward book to book? I really, it's funny, it's, I, I still haven't changed. I just worry about the book I'm writing. I don't have any uh, real long-term ideas, uh, you know. Um, yeah, I just I really kind of try to stay in the moment because uh, they're very contemporary books set in the year they're published, so I don't want to really think about what I'm going to write in five years because it will be a different world, and, you know. So it, it doesn't really serve me to spend too much time on that. I just 
think about what I'm doing right now. But you are thinking about a new next one. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, uh, the towards the end of a book, you start thinking about the next one. And I think that comes out of, uh, I think all writers have a hard time explaining how they do this. You know, it's, it's, it's really kind of, there's a mystical side of doing this. Like, how, how do you keep coming up with these stories and writing 100,000 words? And so if you kind of believe it's magical and mystical, then you, you also know it could go away. So I would never take a vacation. I'd finish a book and start writing the next one the next day. And I take vacations like between drafts, that kind of thing. But I always thought like I got to keep going in case it goes away or, or before it goes away. And uh, so yeah, towards an end of a book, you have a uh, uh, a sense of what you're going to do next. And and I usually don't do direct sequels. I always say you can read these books in any order. But um, you know, the this book kind of answers a question that ended on the last book, so I might be changing in that. And in in the book that Desert in Desert Star, there's a I don't know, like a two pages where Mickey Holler shows up on a phone call. And that, that plants the seed for the next book I'm going to write. So a Mickey Holler Bosch Ballard extravaganza. Yeah, I think all three will have to be in it to some extent. Yeah. And one of the things that I enjoy most about your books is, is the, the, you called it once high jingo, and, and the jingoism and the bureaucracy that you paint and the navigation through that bureaucracy. I also... Um, I'm fascinated by how you dip into science, and that's a big chunk of this book is is DNA and genealogy, and and talk about that a little bit. We, I've already talked about trends in law enforcement, so <laughs> I'm trying to be on the wave, you know, of what's what's going on. And IgG is like the thing uh, very much came to prominence with uh, the Golden State Killer, uh, pretty much solved through that. Um, and so, you know, I'm just reflecting what's going on. Um, and But it does fascinate me. And then I, I, my series about the reporter, Jack McAvoy, all those are thematic about some kind of technology being turned against us, turned sideways. You know, for every great advance we make in science and technology, there's somebody there out there, you know, w figuring out how to turn it against, against us. And that's a f that's a kind of a fascinating thing for me. In in this book, you also introduce us to this kind of collection of of volunteers, the cops, the the people in Ballard's unit. And one of them has a special talent, or at least she thinks she does. And I'm I'm interested in in how you you bring in a psychic to Harry Bosch's world. Well, I. I, I, that was a bit of a setup that I think that's something I can use in a bigger way in a book down down the line. And I just said I don't think about the future, but that, <laughs> uh, the uh, so he um, Ballard brings in someone who's an IgG spe specialist, and she's um, now I'm going to forget the uh, uh, I can't think of the phrase, but it's a phrase that's only been around for five years. It's like something sleuth. Um, Citizen sleuth, yeah. And, you know, I only heard that word, like, you know, or that phrase, like, maybe in the last four or five years. And that's pretty fascinating to me. So she brings in a citizen sleuth who knows how to do, 
to get you know follow the the uh, genetic trail out there on the internet and so forth and get and and you know um, help solve cases that way. But it turns out what this person didn't tell Ballard is that oh by the way I'm also an empath and and if I can hold some evidence I might get might be able to help you solve some cases that kind of thing. So in this book it's a very small part and it's and it's uh, kind of positioned to be humorous because this is very antithetical to Bosch and Bosch is right across the uh uh the pod from this person who, you know, uh is uh is, you know, citizen sleuth slash empath. And uh so that was a foil in a way. But she is part of the unit and I do think that uh she could have an expanded role in, in uh the future. Didn't they used to call that the blue sense? I, I think that's that that empathetic thing. It's funny. That's the name of my next book. No, I, I, I don't. I don't know. I never heard that. The blue sense. All right. And but but I could work with that. It's okay. I, you have my you have my permission. It's not copywriter. But when um when she's um doing this, Bosch antithetically shows a lot of disdain for it. And do you believe that that's how? I, assuming your your context with police, they they wouldn't have much tolerance for that sort of thing. I don't think they would. Um, I'm not discounting it. I'm just saying they would think in terms of when we. They always do this in every case. When we get to court, what is the defense lawyer going to do to us on this or that or that? And 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 Harry voices that opinion in this book. You know, I don't want to work on a case, get it to court, and then they say, how did the psychic solve this or whatever? You know, just something that will belittle the investigation in the eyes of a jury. And and I think that's an issue. Um, but, you know, uh, like you, I was uh, I covered cops for a long time, and, and there was a couple stories that where psychics called in with stuff and they were dead on, and they, they were ignored by the police. But then when they solved the case, it was like, hey, remember that lady, that weird lady who called? She had, she had it right, you know, that kind of thing. So it's, it's, it's part of the mystery world, so I like it. Well, and, and you call her a foil, but I, I want to at least you, you don't treat her like that. You, you treat her very seriously and very <laughs> empathetically. And the relationship feels real. Well, I think I've learned, you know, um, again, you, the more you do something, the better you are, that not, no, no character, you know, everybody counts or nobody counts. That's the same with characters. And, and so in my early books, there were some characters that were pretty cardboard thin, and I try not to do that at all with any character. Every, every character counts or none of them count. And, uh, and so, like, yeah, I, I wanted her to be realistic and, uh, and as you say, possibly uh, have an empathic connection with the reader. I think Hollywood's going to love it. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, I'd like to see a Ballard show, but I don't have anything to report on that right now. But we ought to talk a little bit about Hollywood because y you've you've done something pretty amazing. You've got you've had the movie, you had the Clint Eastwood movie, you you've had the Lincoln Lawyer with Matthew McConaughey, and and recently the Netflix series, and of course Bosch. Um, these are these are real successes. You don't you don't see a lot of books that get treated this way. No, again, I've, I've just been really lucky. Um, I think it's all it is luck. Huh? Well, I mean, believe me, believe it or not, in Hollywood, a lot of luck is needed. But um, you know, 
or a path you take when you could have taken another one and this one works out. Um, you know, like with Bosch, yeah, I signed up with Amazon to make that show when they had literally only one show and, and they were like, like pretty much laughed at in Hollywood. And, but I took a flyer on that and, and, and now nine seasons later, we're still making the show. So, um, that was pretty lucky, I have to say. I mean, but you know, the show's quality is—it's done very well. It's cast really well. Um, right, the writers on the show uh, love love the character. They—they they don't want to like go off and do their own thing. They want to take it, keep it within the bounds of the books. And same thing happened with Lincoln Lawyer, the TV show. So um, again, I just can only say I'm I'm, I'm pretty lucky. And and the Lincoln Lawyer, the the Netflix series, I came at it with with some trepidation. I, I liked the McConaughey um, character. I liked how he portrayed the character. But I would, I was, it was an amazing series. We were glued to it, my my wife and I. Um, and and the and the guy who's playing Mickey Holler has some roots. I mean, they they really went out of their way to cast him along the lines of your books. Yeah, I mean that was really nice. That when that was like obviously a very early decision. Where they said let's let's stick with what's in the book. I think they were smart enough to know we can't get like a guy who's like a kind of like a McConaughey. They really had to go in a different direction to break uh, the show away from the movie. And and one of the choices was well, in the books he's Mexican American, so let's do that. And I was very happy to hear that. How much influence did you have in in the both the Bosch series and the the Lincoln Lawyer series? Um. I think I have more influence than the boss show. Um, but, you know, it's, it's all about the writing room, and that's where I show up a lot. I'm, I'm in the writing room a lot. I don't know a lot about camera angles and all that kind of stuff. I, I don't go to the sets that much. Um, I go, if I go, I'm there to kind of be a cheerleader to so uh, I can tell actors and so forth that they're doing a great job and that kind of thing. But I don't, I, it's, it's not what really is, uh, important to me in the making of these i think being in the writing room is really important are, are you planning to do more hollywood less hollywood i'm doing less i think because i uh mo both of these shows have really strong showrunners and, and writing teams and so forth so I, I don't feel like i have to be there it's like i'm not correcting anybody i'm not saying you know mickey would never do this i don't have to do any of that they're, they're really kind of uh, take the characters and books to heart and, and try to get as close to them as they can. And so once I realize that, I, I really feel like I can step back and concentrate more on my books. And you didn't always have that experience, right? I, I think I remember you talking about blood work being, you know, you had Clint Eastwood and Megastar playing this character that you created, but it wasn't, it didn't feel good. No, on both the movies, and I feel like one was good and one was okay, or maybe not even okay, but I didn't really have anything to do with either one of them. That, that's the way the movies are. The writer is kind of seen as a threat. Uh, Madonna? No, no, more like it's a director's medium, and so they don't want the, the director doesn't want the writer around. TV is a writer's medium. The, you know, the directors do what the writers tell them in TV. And uh, so obviously my experiences are going to be better in that regard. And, uh, you know, I just, you know, the, the movies, uh, you know, Clint Eastwood was, is a big factor in me wanting to be a writer. You know, his Dirty Harry stuff was very influential. So it was a, a great thing to have him 
um, make the movie. I wish they had made made the story that was in the book, <laughs> you know, but they they went in a different direction, and, and that's kind of what I mean about the show is being lucky. They don't want to go in another direction. They don't want to show you how smart they are and going in a different direction. They want to stick with what works in the books and the characters that are in the books. So speaking of um, casting and so forth, um, I know that some people watching it and possibly some of you here, you may be experiencing these books as audiobooks or, you know, um, well, some of you are probably reading them as e-books, but with audiobooks, I noticed, because I, I don't do that, but I was looking at the audiobook for Desert Star and I see that Titus Welliver is the narrator. So, you know, is is that I mean, I think that's really wonderful that you get that continuity of Bosch on, you know, on television and Bosch reading it. How, how long has he been doing that? Or is this the first time? No, he's been doing it for a while. Almost since he's been the character. And then they've gone back and re recorded some of the early books with him. That's really nifty. Do you think that will happen with the Lincoln lawyer too? Will the guy I, I can't think I don't of know. his name? I don't I really don't know, but um I haven't heard they're going to do that, but um, but I think uh, Titus is a really good reader because he's also a fantastic mimic. So if you listen to the books, yeah. he changes his voice. Like he has a Bosch voice, obviously, and but then he'll if there's a guy who's a Russian guy, he has a Russian accent. So it's actually pretty entertaining. So if you watch the Bosch series in part because you really like Titus, you've now got a new way to experience him by just listening to him and you know in a way i think that's really cool because if you're not seeing him do you know and you're hearing his voice you will experience it differently you do know you have a bookstore here right <laughs> <laughs> well i can do a commercial for libro.fm here because there actually is an audiobook provider that functions with independent bookstores every once in a while i mention it to you in the e-news and all if you go to libro Dot .fm and you buy an audiobook there part of your purchase price they pay us so it isn't entirely you know um and you know what i i think that people who read books may also want to go back and listen to an audiobook i mean i i think um rereading maybe instead of rereading it you might prefer somebody might prefer to listen to it all over again while they're driving or something so I don't I don't really think about it as lost sales and frankly you know you're here to embrace your whole public not just the book buyers but the audio no, I mean, and the Kindle I people I think what you just said is a good idea buy the book and then buy the audio book <laughs> If only I could hire Michael wouldn't it be fabulous I know so, Patrick, are there any questions from the Facebook crowd before we open it up for regular questions? Yeah, there are a few questions. Is this thing working? It might not be. No? Okay, it's working great. Uh, one of the questions is about, is Mitzi Roberts aware that she had inspired the character of Renee Ballard? <laughs> no, and don't tell her. No, of course, <laughs> yeah, of course she is. Um, and she, uh, you know, she's been a consultant on the Bosch show. She's worked on my as a consultant for my um, Bosch books for a long time. And it was only in one of those discussions where she started talking about how her, she broke into the detective ranks by volunteering to be the midnight uh, detective, uh, the graveyard shift detective in Hollywood. And it was a job no one wanted. That's how she got in. And that's where the Boward inspiration came from. But no, she's, I couldn't write these books without her help. And when I write them, I'm, Probably a day doesn't go by that I don't text her a question or call her up or say, can we get breakfast tomorrow or something, you know, because I want want the books to be really accurate. And I have the person who lives this life 
um, you know, available to me. So I'd be a fool not to not to uh, call on her. Right. Now, you talked about this already a little bit, but in this new book, uh, there is what's known as a white whale case um, for Bosch, you know, a, a case that he was never able to solve. Um, and it's the Gallagher family case in this book. Um, can you talk a little bit about what inspired that? Well, we, yeah, we did talk about it. It was a case in um, uh, San Diego County. A family disappeared and um, was gone. Um, and it, it didn't, it wasn't solved. Uh, it was solved a lot faster than it is in this book. But eventually, uh, and I don't remember the details of how they tracked it to, I think it was a, an intentional discovery of a, uh, a grave site out in the desert and the family had been there and you know the white whale part of it was part of um the uh the way um Ballard knew to uh kind of convince harry to to jump on board with her in this new enterprise of of the cold case unit i was talking uh, part of the inspiration came from i was talking to a retired detective who was working uh volunteering as cold case guy and uh, he said this thing about uh, most of my regrets are for things I didn't do in my life, not things I did do. And that's where, you know, unsolved cases, the things I didn't do, I didn't solve that one. Those are the biggest regrets of my life. And that really kind of played a part in uh, doing this story. There's a actually a tender moment, and I was mentioning to you that where Bosch, somebody refers to it as the Gallagher case, and you you... Bosch reins him back and says, no, it's the Gallagher family case. And that becomes very important. And, and I'm wondering if you had a conversation with an officer about that phraseology or if it just felt right. No, I think that was part of um, the Bosch character. Like he never had a family. So when he sees a family destroyed like this, it, it, it somehow means more to him. It's like the ideal that he probably grew up wishing that he had um, kind of like snatched away. So I think that's why he was very reverent about it and and uh, didn't cut it down to just the Gallagher case. It was the Gallagher family case to him. Um, I'm going to, this may sound off point, but it actually isn't. We did an event this weekend, and uh, the author, Daniel Pink, who is a nonfiction writer, has written a book called The Power of Regret. And he gave a really phenomenal speech to the, it was the Arizona Women's Board, the the um, raising funds for kidney research, and and he make the point in his book is that as people grow older and look back, you can learn to forgive yourself for the things that you did that um, that you wish you hadn't, but you can never you can never get past regret for the things you didn't do. And he had a wonderful example of a guy who met some woman on a train, and um, to the end of his life he let her go. And he didn't get off the train and follow her, and he never knew how that story would go. So I had Daniel autograph copies. I am going to sell books right here. Um, <laughs> I had I had Daniel autograph copies of it for us. But I do think, you know, that as we're coming out of the pandemic and we've had losses, or you know, life has changed and all, I think that that's a really powerful thing, Mike, to think about. You know, the the power of regret. What is it that you didn't choose to do? can be much more devastating than the things that you did choose, even if they went wrong. You'll never know how those stories went. So don't you think that's really, Harry just can't stand the idea that, you know, he, or he will always regret it if he doesn't try to find out what happened to this family? Yeah, 
No, I think that's that's where Bauer's genius is that she knows she could tap into that. Um, and it's also, I think there's also people who who in the moment of a decision know if I don't do this, I will regret it. So you know, so it's also a motivating factor in you know everyday life. The last one is uh, any chance Renee will show up in Bosch Legacy. Um, will she ever show up in Bosch show? Yeah, I hope so. Um, uh, I, I don't count on anything till it happens, but there's been discussions about it because of this new book where where she puts together this kind of ragtag team of misfits and psychic and all that kind of stuff. That has kind of turned her head because before, it's funny, this is like a very Hollywood uh, answer. She worked a midnight shift and that would make it a very dark show you'd have to go to like an actress and say, you're going to be working nights most of the next seven months. And they just saw the first four Boward books as like non-starters. We don't want to go down that dark road. And then uh, I, I gave like a galley uh, to, to the boss of uh, who oversees um, Bosch Legacy. And she said, this is full of sunshine. We got to talk about this. You know, so so it could happen. We'll it's see. It's interesting. You talked earlier about you know different foreign countries making, uh, like Harlan Coben has a new. I can't remember which language it's in. Spanish. Well, he's got them in a couple of different languages: French, Spanish. Yeah, it'd be interesting shows. to see uh, an interpretation of of this done in a different setting. Yeah, could happen. Yeah. At this point, we have maybe ten or fifteen minutes of uh, audience questions before we clean out the store and everybody lines up by number. Let me remind you now that if you bought a book tonight, you should have a number in your book. And that's how this works is that we're going to line up in front of Mike by number. And some of you might even want to step outside because it's going to be kind of crowded um, and we don't want anybody to fall. And I have a book to give away. So um, your number will come into play for that. It's like a lottery. My husband said someday I'm going to go to jail for the book lottery that I'm conducting <laughs> at the store, but there's no money involved, so I figure I'm bulletproof, right? So, Mike, do you want to take questions? Sure. If there's questions. <laughs> yep. Did I have any say in the casting of Titus? Um, yeah, I had. Um, I didn't have any kind of like contractual, I veto power or anything like that. But I was the one who suggested they talk to him about it because uh, I had seen him in a show where he was playing a uh, ex uh, a military guy who had uh, uh, what do you call that distress um, PTSD, and you know he, he was very subtle about it, but you could tell the guy was carrying a heavy burden and um the Bosch books are very internal you know what he's thinking and you can't put that into a script so we you know the showrunner who's like the creative boss of the show said like obviously the lead of a show is the most important character but it's going to be really difficult to find someone who can show harry's inner world without talking about it you know and which he wouldn't do and I just saw it in Titus, and this he was on the show. He was a two-part guest star on the show. So I threw his name out there, and they talked to many, many actors and auditions and all that, but he ended up being the guy they chose. So I feel like I had something to do with it. Yeah, way back there. 
Well, that's a morbid thought. <laughs> I have not. Um, no, I mean, we, it's funny, uh, Patrick and Robert and I were talking about that in the back room. I, on one hand, I feel like I've been living with this character for 30 years, and I kind of feel like I should bring it to an end, that I, you know, that when I'm done writing about him, I should close the story so then it becomes a full story. And then, you know, I think, well, maybe my daughter will want to be in charge of this, you know, and after I'm gone. Um, I, you know, I'll talk to her about it, but I, I would prefer not doing that. I, I, w I hope I do kind of close this story, the Harry Bosch story, by the time I'm done. Um, she asked about the connection to Maddie um, with my daughter as an inspirational point, what she thinks and so forth. Um, she, well, I mean, I think she, she's 25 years old, so she kind of acts cool about everything. But I think she, she likes the idea that there's a literary character that's very much based on her, and and I think she recognizes some of the things that, uh, some of the things that we've talked about when they're in the books. Um, I do remember way back when she was only five years old and we were driving down the street and she's in the back seat in her car seat and you know looking at what we're passing and she said um do you think the burger king and the dairy queen are married and um and 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 in the first maddie book she says that and uh um and and then i realized you know this is going to be a good thing having a, a research subject living under the same roof so so i think she likes it but she plays it cool as a 25 year old la kid would um we're just about to film the last episode of the next season so i think we're going to stay on that uh, may cycle so we had the show come out in may i don't know if you saw that one but we'll have the next one i think in may and didn't you just announce that season two of the Howler series is coming? Yeah, season two of Lincoln Lawyer started filming on Monday, last Monday. So that's coming along too. Yes. Wow. Thank you. She asked if I um, knew that when I wrote that first Ballard book, I was going to intertwine the stories with Bosch. And when I was writing the first Ballard book, I did not. I, I was thinking this might be a one-off, but then I realized um, that she could keep Harry Bosch alive by bringing into a book what he can't do. Uh, he's no longer a cop and so forth. So, so the idea of pairing them in a way... Um, I knew um, was a way of keeping Harry Bosch going. And that's really what I'm about, keeping Harry Bosch going. So I love all these other characters, but 
you know, I started with Harry and, and hopefully we'll end with Harry. And, uh, and, and so I just have to find ways of realistically keeping that going. And, you know, Ballard and this recent trend of using um, retired detectives on cold case units, those things have combined to make me feel that I can probably write about him till I'm finished writing. So that's a good thing. Just the, it's, it's the best job in the world. I mean, to, to be able to kind of like do what you want to do in terms of uh, storytelling, um, to work at home, to be able to go to a store like this and and people appreciate what you're doing. I, I just don't, I can't even think of any negatives about it. Um, so I, you know, so you got, as I said before, you got you to gotta treat it as something sacred and take care of it and respect it you know, and never mail it in. Um, and, you know, so that's that's what my, my goal is as a writer. Dude, I can't believe you don't want to still be in a newsroom sitting down behind a computer in a cubicle. I I take care of all my needs for uh, journalism by doing these podcasts every now and then. Uh, yeah. I was just going to ask. Uh, the question is, do have I thought about doing a prequel? And yeah, I think about that, but I really, I guess it's the old journalist in me. I really, I and mean, I think there's some journalism in this fiction. I'm trying to get the world right that Harry inhabits or, or Mickey Haller inhabits. Um, and it's just a lot of fun to do that. And, and, I, and I am very conscious of the idea that I, I've been given this almost anthropological study of, of a person over now 30 years maybe it will g I'll get to 40 and uh, so again I, I revere it it's sacred to me and I want to keep doing it but if I do reach a point that it doesn't become believable anymore that Harry can do this then I am gathering string to you know what that means right it's a journalist word I've been collecting ideas and thoughts and reading books about doing that kind of story, either Harry in Vietnam or Harry is a rookie uh, cop. And when Harry would be a rookie cop was a very interesting time in L.A. with Patty Hearst, S.L.A., shootouts. All, there's a lot of stuff that happened in, in the uh, first couple of years he was on the job. So that's probably more interesting to me. But it could include the Vietnam stuff because it would be very fresh. It would only be a few years before that he had those experiences. So maybe it's one book that covers it all. But... I think eventually I'll get to that. He had a question, right? Well, I was just going to ask you about, I, I, indulge me with this, but you've told a story, I've heard a story uh, about an experience that you had with your, with your dad driving that had a profound influence on you as a young man. And I, most of these people probably have not heard it. You might I don't know if I've heard it. Oh. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? No. no okay. All right. So. <laughs> You saw a gentleman running? Oh, I wasn't with my dad. Oh. Okay. I was by myself. No, yeah, when I was 16, I yeah. worked at, as a dishwasher at a resort in Fort Lauderdale. And I was driving home uh, around midnight. And I saw a guy running, but he wasn't like a jogger. He was uh, wearing uh, jeans and a um, like a lumberjack-type shirt. And as he's running, he takes off the shirt, wraps it around something, and sticks it in a hedge. 
and I'm sitting at a red light and I see this happening and I was very curious, like, what was that? And so when the light turned green and that guy kept running, I went over to the hedge and I pulled out his shirt and it was wrapped around a gun. And uh, so then I called my dad from a pay phone because this, this happened in 1973. And um, I said, I told him what happened and then he goes, well, the guy probably just did something. And then while I'm talking to my dad, I see all these blue lights and cop cars. So he, so luckily I didn't keep the gun. I wasn't holding a gun with the, it was, I put it back in the hedge. It was first the first time I had ever held a gun in my life. And um, so he said, flag him down, tell him what you did, what you saw and all that. And so I spent a night in the police station, you know, describing the guy, looking at some lineups of people they picked out, picked up. And so that was like, you know, I, that didn't, that didn't happen. That split second where I saw the guy do it. I probably wouldn't be sitting here because I think that got me interested in cops and detectives and uh, true crime. First started with true. Well, I, I kept reading. What happened was the guy just shot somebody. He it was a they didn't use the phrase back then, but it was a carjacking gone wrong. He tried to steal this guy's car. He wouldn't give up his car. He sh and he shot him. And so I started reading the paper, the crime stories in the paper to see if they ever arrested someone. And then that led me to true crime books, and then that led me to crime fiction and and so here I am. So it had to have happened. Mike, there's Somebody. two over here that we're telling yep. you we're gonna have to stop. Uh, he was talking about the inspiration or the decision to go from being a journalist to doing the, the crime fiction. It was actually the opposite. Um, I So that experience I just talked about led me to reading crime fiction. And I f finally came to a point where I said, I want to try to do this. And so it was in counseling with my parents about, you know, I told them, that, you know, it's a pretty, pretty long shot idea for like a 19-year-old to say, yeah, I want to write crime fiction. Um, and so my father suggested I go, I, this was when I was in college, uh, that I change my major to journalism, and then, you know, when you, if you get a press pass, you can cover the cops, and you can cover courts, and you can emerge, you know, immerse yourself in the world you hope to write about. And maybe you'll find inspiration, maybe you'll find knowledge and so forth that will help you do that. So it was a really good scheme or plan from my father that, that worked out. Um, so all along, when I was a journalist, to me it was like, uh, a mean, a hopeful means to an end. I so from day one, my first day as a reporter, I already had the idea that I hope this leads me down the path to to writing uh, crime fiction. Your question, sir. The character is Clayton Barrel. Are you inspired by some people that you come across in your experiences, or along the way? He's asking where Clayton Barrel come from, and. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because, uh, again, this comes when we're, we're, there's a guy named Eric Overmeyer who's the boss of the Boss Show. He's the creative boss. He's called the showrunner. And he's been on the show since the beginning, since it was just him and me talking about how do we do this. And he said, your books are pretty dark, um, and that's not going to work in TV. So we got to spread the storytelling out. Your books are almost carried completely through Harry Bosch's eyes. We can't do that. So we're going to take some of these cardboard thin characters and give them life. So we're going to follow them. 
and and we're gonna give the guy who plays Harry Bosch some time off, some days off, so we don't kill him. And um, <laughs> but he said a key thing is gonna be humor, and so I'm gonna. He he was uh, pretty good, already pretty good personal friends with the guy who plays Barrel, and he says I'm gonna bring in a, a couple of detectives, and and we're gonna use them as humor, humor. Uh, they'll just be interesting guys, and um, and I said, well, I had any, and I looked at Barrow, I looked him up on IMDb, and saw he was kind of round, and um, so I went back to um, Eric, and I said, well, in one of my books, there was a team of uh, internal affairs detectives that people derided and called them Crate and Barrow, and he, he said, okay, that's great, we're going to use that, and um, so that that's how the Crate and Barrow were born, and. Um, uh, Eric is very possessive of those characters, so like even though he doesn't, his name is not on every script. He writes every all their dialogue all through the nine seasons, and all the banter about the uh, movies and and all that stuff. And he he overwrites. He writes a lot of stuff, and then he cuts it down. So because he's a real believer in less is more, but there's some amazingly funny stuff <laughs> that. Uh, that never made it. And I, I, I'll look at a cut, I'll look at the long cut, and then I'll see what he cut out. And I go like, are you sure you don't want that in there? That was, that, that's pretty funny. You know, like an example is that the last season, uh, Crate is getting his shoes polished in the thing, and the chief comes in and he goes like, hi, chief, um, or congratulations, chief. I forget what happened. And and the chief just walks by him, not even acknowledging him. And then he says to the uh, shoe shine guy, he knows me pretty well. <laughs> it's like, I just thought that was so funny, and then it got cut. But uh, anyway, so there's a lot of that stuff, and like, um, you know, where they talk about whether that was in The Godfather One or Two, and that, all that kind of stuff. It's it's great stuff, and it all comes from the the same uh, creative mind, which is not mine, but I think I get a lot of credit for it. So to wind up, what you're saying is that the Lincoln Lawyer season two will start Monday. It already started on Monday. It did start? Yeah. Oh, it goes through election week. Right. Yeah. Um, and there'll be a Bosch, you think, next May. But anyway, it's in. it's been production. Yeah. All right. You, you've got another Bosch novel, because you've already mentioned that that's going on. Are you going to publish anything else next year, or will it be just the one Bosch? I don't want just the one. It's totally unfair. Will it be <laughs> Bosch plus something else? I don't know. Now that I'm pulling back from Hollywood, I'll probably have more time. So, um I don't think it will happen next year, but I think a two-book year will probably come around pretty soon. Yeah, because those you've been reading might know that there are years when he's written more than one book in a year, and that's always a wonderful treat for us because then we get to see him more often. So, Patrick, what number did you come up with? Okay, wow, 103 tickets. Thank you very much. That's a lot of books, Mike. We actually did sell some. Yay. Is that the um, the raffle winner? Yeah, well, we're, you're going to get to pick the number out oh. of the 103. So the book I'm going to give away was the author that came last night on election night, and I thought the least we could do would be to give away a free copy of her book tonight, for those of you who missed it. It's called Secluded Cabin Sleep Six by Lisa Unger, a very... Very good author, um, who actually started, I learned last night, started out as a book publicist. I had no yeah. idea that that was her. So we worked together, unbeknownst to me, back in the night in, in from 2002 to 2009. But she was then working under her maiden name, and she's writing under her married name. So 
confusing. Anyway, Mike, can you pick a number between, and, and I had her autograph it, so you're going to get an autographed, and this is the copy I read. This is called an advanced reading copy, um, and oftentimes it has notes from publishers telling me what I should think about the book. So I'm serious. Um, so, you know, you may, I'm not saying this one does, but it's not infrequently that that is what happens. Um, so anyway, we want to pick a number between 1 and 103, and you have to be here to win, so sometimes it takes two or three numbers. Um, 23. You're a winner. All right. Yeah. Catch me at the end. I was really hoping it wouldn't be you because you just bought the book. <laughs> I thought it's going to have to disqualify you, right? So anyway, thank you all so much. Let's give Mike a big round of applause. Thank you. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.